Israeli bombs and missiles have rained down again in the last 24 hours on central and southern Gaza. Hundreds more are dead. Another hospital destroyed. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Yara Shafani. She is a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement and a PhD student in political science at York University. And Janine Harani, a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement. We're talking to Janine from the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us on, Brian. Thank you both. We're all in this movement together. Yara, you are in Toronto. You have had massive protests in Toronto, perhaps the biggest ever in Canada in support of the Palestinian people. Janine, you're in the UK. Massive, huge demonstrations against the war in Gaza, denouncing the genocide, demanding a ceasefire, condemning the British government's alliance with Genocide Joe and the US government in its support for this genocide. We can see that there is a global movement. There has been a sea change in consciousness. The Israeli government, with the exception of the support it receives from from the White House and from both parties in Congress, is relatively isolated globally. But the war is going on. We're entering now the fourth month of the war waged by the Israeli Defense Forces against the people of Gaza. More than 23,000 are dead perhaps hundreds of thousands wounded. Most people have had their homes either destroyed or at least partly damaged. Perhaps a million people who have been displaced. A humanitarian crisis. The UN rapporteur says the people in Gaza are facing starvation. And yet the war goes on. What, from your point of view, Yara, is Netanyahu and the Israeli military, what are their objectives? What are they doing right now Yes, they're succeeding in killing lots of people, but let's talk about what their objectives are and whether they're succeeding there. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that the Israeli military is failing significantly at some of the critical goals that it had outlined for this war. So when Israel entered this war, it outlined two primary goals. One was the destruction of Hamas, you know, the end, to officially end the structure and organization and military capabilities of Hamas. And the second was to release hostages. And Israel has been able to achieve neither of these. We know that Hamas is still operating inside Gaza. And we also know that Israel was not able to release any hostages except for that period of time when there was a you know pause and Israel participated in a prisoner exchange directly and this was the only way that we saw Israeli hostages released and so i think at this point Israel is really trying to deal with some of its internal contradictions the Israeli people are in an uproar against Netanyahu which i'm sure we'll talk more about later but 
Israel is trying to kind of salvage its presence and its power amongst its people. Netanyahu is already a particularly unpopular prime minister and is really trying to deliver any last possible wins, trying to engage in mass destruction, which we know Israel believes in as per the Dehiya doctrine, whereby Israel commits to, you know, creating mass destruction in a disproportionate way. And so really Israel is just engaging in mass destruction inside Gaza, attempting to save face to its people amidst an inability to deliver its stated demands in entering this war and also potentially trying to draw the United States and other actors in at a time when the United States is trying to potentially stop a regional war. Israel seems to be keen on using a last resort in order to push for a regional war. And so at this point, it seems like Israel is really just moving in a direction of grasping at at final straws while its time is ticking as per public pressure and public opinion on how much longer it can continue this war. Thank you. Janine, we were looking at some of that B-roll footage. I don't know if you could see it. The devastation is, it's mind-boggling, truly mind-boggling. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, especially the Wall Street Journal, oddly, have compared the destruction in Gaza to the worst atrocities in World War II. They compared it to the firebombing of Dresden in Germany, where which is, of course, the subject of many literary topics, war crimes investigations. But the Allied forces at the end of the war, towards the end, Germany was basically defeated. Dresden was officially, or not officially, but unofficially, really a civilian city, not a military city. And there was a a firebombing of Dresden such that the temperature was so high and created such a firestorm in the atmosphere that hundreds of thousands of people were incinerated almost instantly. I mean, one of the great crimes of the modern era, like the dropping of the atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The imagery of Gaza is so stark, and no one, even the Wall Street Journal, can't avoid the comparison with Dresden. And yet, as Yara said, success at killing people, at destruction, but not accomplishing its military objectives. I wonder, you know, the Israeli ruling class, like any ruling class, has different trends, different factions, many times at war with each other. What's Netanyahu's objectives? Obviously, as Yara mentioned, Israeli society is very polarized. Is the prolongation of this atrocity partly or even mainly at this point a consequence of Netanyahu's own sort of narrow interests as a politician? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that Netanyahu and the Zionist entity at large have no other option at this moment but to escalate the war. Um, Because as Yara alluded to, the only thing that really holds Israeli society together is war and the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Even before October 7th, as was alluded to, you know, Zionism was clearly in crisis. You know, we saw regular protests against the judicial reforms, We saw army reservists on strike and we saw Netanyahu losing popular support amongst Israeli society. And what we were seeing play out in front of us was a clear and widening divide between the vanguard settler movement that's represented in in the coalition government and the more, you know, so-called liberal institutionalists. But we knew at the time, as we know today, that despite these differences, Israelis are united in supporting the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. 
And, you know, for a brief moment after October 7th, we saw a coming together of Zionist society, you know, despite these differences, despite these widening contradictions, there was a fleeting moment where the war kind of started to reunite them. We quickly saw that fleeting moment corrode and that left Netanyahu with no other option but to escalate into what he's hoping will become a regional war, which is what we're seeing playing out today. Yeah, that's important. Let's talk about strategy here. So Yara and Janine mentions Netanyahu wants a regional war. So both of you agree that the Israeli military is not succeeding in terms of its military objectives. Yes, killing a lot of people. But as we know from Vietnam, when the Americans killed millions of Vietnamese, it didn't mean that the U.S. won the war in Vietnam. On the contrary, the U.S. was driven from Vietnam. So Netanyahu, Yara, according to Janine, looking for a regional war, we all are aware, I think anyone who's paying attention about the very targeted assassination of a senior Hamas political leader in Beirut, not in Gaza, in Beirut, obviously an escalation on the part of the Israeli government. Was it designed? Is it designed? to draw Lebanon into the war, and then Syria, then Iran, then Iraq. In other words, does Netanyahu see a wider war as an improvement of Israeli chances? And if so, why? I think there's two primary motivators behind some of what we're seeing in terms of political assassinations that Israel is conducting. You know, the first, I think, is an attempt to look for targets outside of Gaza in search of military victories that it can achieve. And what I mean by this is, you know, of course, there is the assassination of Saleh Haruri that took place in Lebanon, in Beirut, you know, which really was a huge crossing of red lines that had been previously outlined by Hezbollah in Lebanon. But then there was also, just a few days ago, the assassination of Hezbollah leader Wissam El-Tawil in South Lebanon. And back in December, we saw Israel assassinate Sayyid Razi Mousavi, who was a longtime advisor of the Iranian paramilitary revolutionary guards in Syria. And he was killed in an airstrike on Damascus back at the end of December. And so what we're seeing here is Israel engaging in political assassinations, which is part of Israel's longstanding history to participate in, you know, extrajudicial military assassinations, not only across the region, but Israel has even had a history of assassinating Palestinian political leaders all across the world, in Europe, you know, in Latin America, and so on. And so we're seeing this attempt to look for targets outside of Gaza, I think, in order to be able to point to some sort of military victories. And I think on the other side is exactly what you noted, Brian, which is a seeming attempt to enter an escalation with Lebanon. As I mentioned, this was a violation of Hezbollah's stated red lines and a direct attack on Lebanon's sovereignty. It breached Lebanon's security. It involved, you know, an attack on a very populated residential neighborhood in Beirut, despite, you know, media attempts to whitewash this crime and call this a Hezbollah stronghold. This was a residential neighborhood. And, you know, the attack was a, I think, clear attempt in order to try to draw Lebanon into a regional war, partially because Israel has been losing a propaganda war and Western nations have begun to really place pressure on Israel to withdraw from Gaza. We know that the United States, you know, is 
really wanting to see an, some sort of political solution come out of this is starting to face extreme pressure by the masses in the United States and across the world in order to end this war. And I think Israel is really trying to draw the United States and other regional and European allies back into the Middle East by attempting to push for and you know challenge Hezbollah into a regional war. All right, let's stick with this topic a little bit, Janine. You're you're in the UK, you're in Europe. UK is no longer part of the EU, but part of Europe, certainly. And if the calculation of Netanyahu is to have a larger war, then the US presumably will, even if it wants a political solution and is unhappy with the notion of a regional war, that they would be drawn in, that there would be this kind of kinship between the U.S. government and its proxy, its ally, so to speak, the Israeli regime, which really is a dependency on, on the U.S. And then the U.S. has all of its allies, so-called, in Europe, in NATO in particular. You have massive demonstrations where you are in the U.K., and of course the British government is the most trusted, long-standing ally of U.S. imperialism, but you have this groundswell of popular support against the war. What about the rest of Europe? What's your assessment about whether Israel's drive towards a regional war with the hope of drawing the European imperial governments, the NATO members on the side of the U.S. and thus on the side of Israel? I mean, that has to be provoking a lot of consternation and worry and opposition inside of Europe, but I'm not there. Just tell us about that, if you would. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just wanted to also note, maybe I misspoke in the context of of regional war, but I think it's important for us to note that or acknowledge that we are already in a regional war, kind of as Yada spoke about, albeit, you know, relatively low intensity regional war. We're in a multi-front regional war that's being fought by the Palestinian resistance in the south of Palestine, by the Lebanese resistance in the north of Palestine, by the Yemenis in the Red Sea, and by Iraq, who are targeting U.S. military bases. And so for all intents and purposes, we are in, in a lot of ways already in a regional war. And what we're talking about is, you know, further escalation and, you know, dragging, as you mentioned, Brian, U.S. and Britain, the U.K. government and other allies into a large scale war than what we're already seeing playing out. And as you mentioned, you know, in Britain, we're seeing hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions taking to the streets, you know, almost weekly in support of the Palestinian cause. And we're seeing broad-based support. We also have factories, arms factories around the country in Britain that are being used to supply arms, the very arms that are being used on the airstrikes in Gaza. And, you know, we are seeing the British military and the UK government deploy royal Navy ships to support the Zionist entity and their atrocities in this moment. And so we are seeing a sharpening of contradictions as we are seeing all over the world of the masses realizing and coming to terms with the fact that the political class do not act in the interests of the people, of the popular masses. And, you know, that is why we're continuing to see people take to the streets. And I think it's particularly interesting to note in the context of Britain, how we're seeing the British left 
reconstituting in this moment. You know, in in Britain, we've seen a reawakening of the Palestinian movement, but also of the British left. And in the post-Corbyn era, a lot of the British left were demobilized, they were paralyzed. And since October 7th, we have seen the British left reconstituting itself, creating new formations and new coalitions. And many of these formations and coalitions were created in response to Palestine, but actually have become a gateway to build up bigger and broader leftist organizing and organizations. And so through the lens of Palestine, we've really seen a rebuilding, a reconstitution, and a re-energizing of the British left in, in a really kind of inspiring and incredible way. Glad you mentioned that because there was so much euphoria when Jeremy Corbyn from out of nowhere, I mean, we've known Jeremy Corbyn forever. He used to come to our demonstrations during the Iraq war in, in Washington. He was a political activist, a leftist, a socialist. And suddenly he was the head of the Labour Party because of this mass movement, really, of young people in the UK. And then the destruction of the Corbyn-led Labour Party grouping by the Labour Party itself, by the so-called mainstream imperialist Labour Party, that was devastating. And of course, the false assaults against Corbyn for being anti-Semitic simply really because he supported the Palestinian people. He had been a lifelong supporter of the Palestinian struggle. Yara, like we're in one of those moments where the Palestinian struggle is first and foremost about Palestine. It's first and foremost about the people who have been dispossessed from their land, who have been ethnically cleansed, the people whose, whose very resistance has really kept the, the issue of Palestine front and center. The consciousness of the Palestinian people, in spite of the the people being cast all over the world. I mean, this remarkable feature of this struggle is about Palestine, first and foremost. But as Janine is pointing out, it's a trigger for the reconstitution of radical left anti-imperialist forces also. I certainly feel that here in the United States. I mean, I think we're still in sort of the infant stage of that or maybe even embryonic stage, but it's happening. What about where you are? What about Canada? What's your assessment of this? I mean, I I agree with her. Yeah, absolutely. I think in this context, what we're seeing really very clearly is a broad sharpening of contradictions, right, amongst the people. I think this moment is changing everyone, including people who maybe are new to this question, the question of Palestine, Day in and day out, I'm talking to young people who have really never thought that they could be in this place where they're questioning everything that they had ever learned and knew and were taught growing up. And so what we're seeing here is such a large number of people, particularly youth, but really all across Canada, the United States, all across Europe, who are for the first time, you know, taking out to the streets, many of them pro-Palestinian protests are their first protests and are moved by the organization that's taking place and are asking the question of what next? How do I get organized? And we're seeing so many groups that are developing out of this moment who are, you know, really activated by Palestine, but at the same time are also asking the questions of what are the interests of the media corporations who are misreporting on Palestine, you know, intentionally? What are the interests of the elected officials who almost 90 days into this war 
with the majority of people, whether it's in Canada or the United States or in Britain, supporting a ceasefire and elected officials are refusing to heed the call of the masses. This is posing a serious question for people and it's, you know, making them rethink how they understand what's often called a democracy and we know is not the case that they live in. And I think this is driving people into political organizations. It's opening up the door for additional questions. I know at many of these protests, these Palestinian protests, it's not only Palestinian speakers, but we hear agitating and powerful speeches from a broad range of struggles, whether it be working class and labor you know, speakers or other national liberation struggles. And this is also politicizing people. This is, you know, kind of Palestine is a stepping stone to, for them into a new, new way to understand the world. And I think this is on par with the history of the Palestinian national liberation struggle. I think Palestine has always been something that's really moved the masses, really moved so much of the global South, because, you know, what does it mean that the small, tiny nation that has been, you know, relentlessly attacked by not only Israel, but by Western, the most powerful Western nations, and a hundred years later is still fighting on and is ready to fight on for another hundred years. Palestine, to so many people who belong to oppressed nationalities or who believe in the necessity of anti-imperialism and the necessity to challenge capitalism, Palestine to all of these people represents a possibility, right? A possibility, which is that if the small nation that has been, you know, attacked by empire for the last hundred years, if it can succeed, if it can defeat imperialism, then this can change the world and the trajectory of history for everyone as well. Yeah, those are important points. Again, this Saturday, for people who are watching this show, if you're in the United States, come to Washington, D.C., to Freedom Plaza. Hundreds of thousands of people will be joining together to demand a ceasefire, to demand an end to occupation, an end to apartheid, and for the liberation, the national liberation of the Palestinian people in solidarity with that. So this movement's not going to go away. Janine, the Netanyahu government says, we're going to keep fighting. They hope, as you said, to widen the regional war. And I think your point is well taken. It's already a regional war, but a dramatic escalation so that major military forces are fighting not skirmishes, but huge battles with Israel would be an effort to draw in the United States and its European imperialist allies in NATO. But anyway, from all appearances, the war is going to go on. And the Israelis are killing more and more people every day. And it's not just in Gaza. You look at what's going on in the West Bank, where the Israeli government continues to empower racist, fascist, settler, armed settler groupings to come and kill without cause or provocation. I mean, just not that there would be any reason, even if there was resistance, but I'm looking at videos even this morning of young Palestinian teenagers who are shot for no reason. They just shot because the settlers wanted to shoot them and they do it with impunity. The struggle isn't just about Gaza, it's about the Palestinian movement everywhere. I wanna just talk about though the West Bank because it seems there that the, the conditions are so intense, the repression so great, and the, the sense of resistance and the spirit of the people to fight also so great 
that it's a highly combustible element here going forward. Let's just, for our audience in the United States, for instance, who doesn't know that much about the West Bank, what's going on? Yeah, absolutely, Brian, as you mentioned. So we're seeing intensified attacks and extreme settler violence in the West Bank in places like Jenin, in places like Al Khalil or Hebron. We are seeing intensified attacks and we're also seeing mass arrests. You know, we all saw the footage of Palestinian prisoners being freed in prisoner exchanges, but we've seen thousands of Palestinians arrested in in the West Bank in the aftermath of October 7th. And this is really, you know, the the collective punishment we're seeing in Gaza really is not limited to Gaza, even though it might look slightly different. There is collective punishment also kind of being perpetrated against the Palestinian people in the West Bank as well. But I think it's important to note as well that, you know, despite the increasing violence that people in the West Bank are witnessing in Gaza and are experiencing themselves in the West Bank, there is still, or increasing actually, popular support for the Palestinian resistance. So polling from December, actually, recent polls that were usually happen annually, but in the aftermath of October 7th, there was a poll from December that shows that in the aftermath of October 7th, there is increased popular support for armed struggle as a strategy for Palestinian liberation. And this is particularly the case in the West Bank. We're also seeing in the West Bank, you know, dwindling support for Mahmoud Abbas and for the PA more broadly and the comparable class of the PA and increased popular support for Palestinian resistance. And as part of that, as an extension of that, there's also an appetite and a hunger for new leadership, you know, particularly people starting to talk about who the next leader of of Palestine could be, people starting to talk about a unified government that oversees Gaza and the West Bank that is led by kind of a new era of Palestinian leadership. A lot of people are talking about Marwan Barghouti, that is the name that is on everyone's tongue um, at the moment. And the reason for that is because People believe that he could unite the Palestinian people. He is an established resistance leader. He has wide popular support across all the factions. And people really believe that, you know, he could be the next leader or the upcoming leader of the Palestinian liberation movement. At the same time, or in the face of this, we're seeing Blinken, you know, meeting with with Abbas to discuss the political vision for a post-war Gaza. And we know that there is decreasing support for U.S. imperialism and, and empire and dwindling support for the PA. So it make, it's no surprise, given that they are inextricably linked to each other, that they are also joining forces in this moment to try and, you know, calculate and, you know, scheme themselves out of this like colossal failure that they are both experiencing. And it's, yeah, it's no surprise that they're coming together to scheme in this moment because both of them are losing their grip over Palestine, but also over the region more broadly. Yeah, Yara, same question to you then. Let's, I want to get your thoughts on that same topic. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting, like in the context of the West Bank and, you know, like Janine was saying, we have been seeing really heightened aggression inside the West Bank, significant attacks. You know, I think it was just last night that there was a a really extensive raid on Janine. And this is coming on, you know, after many attempts to try to destroy segments of Janine refugee camp. We know that Janine refugee camp historically has been a really critical part of Palestinian resistance and struggle. And we saw just a year, about a year ago, an attempt or a shift towards revolutionizing the West Bank as part of an assessment by Palestinian, the Palestinian resistance that 
the resistance could not only be operating in Gaza, but needed a bit of a broader terrain. And so we saw in Janine, there was a really heightened kind of revolutionizing of Janine. And this is a, a camp that has been, is one of the, the poorest parts of the West Bank. And so we've seen really intensified attacks on the West Bank, on Janine and Tulkarim and Al-Khalil, like, like Janine said. But in addition to that, I think we're seeing the attempt by the United States in particular to salvage the Palestinian Authority. And we know that today, actually, Blinken is meeting with Mahmoud Abbas and is discussing the political solution for post-Gaza war. And really what we know is that the United States is really pushing for a possibility for a political solution. They know that a political solution with Hamas is not really in, in the cards. They're not interested in attempting to negotiate a political solution with Hamas. But the United States is talking extensively about establishing a Palestinian state. They're talking about the importance, Blinken is talking about the importance of a Palestinian state, talking about this in relationship to longstanding peace in the region, peace for Israel, and so on. And like Janine said, we know that the Palestinian Authority is really a comprador. This is a structure that came to be through imperialism's attempt to intervene in the Palestinian revolution after the first intifada through the Oslo Accords and really attempt to kind of create a Palestinian political class that would suggest or create the facade of a Palestinian state agree to put down Palestinian arms, so end the Palestinian revolution, and agree to some kind of piecemeal deal where Palestinians get just a tiny bit of land. And of course, we know that even that, Israel was not willing to cooperate on through the expansion of settlements and so on. And so really, there seems to be an attempt by the United States yet again to try to intervene, to try to draft a path for a political solution. Blinken is discussing reforms for the Palestinian Authority just today in the West Bank. And so it's clear that there is a attempt or a calculation by the United States that there needs to be some kind of political solution and the Palestinian Authority seems to be the most promising route for them for a political solution, despite the fact that the Palestinian Authority, like Janine said, is extremely unpopular amongst the Palestinian people, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, and that the Palestinian people, I think, for the most part, have learned from the experience of Oslo, the betrayal of Oslo, and are not interested in U.S. imperialism's attempt to negotiate a sort of facade of a political solution. Janine, let's just talk about, and I'm going to come back to you, Yara, and ask you a similar question, because I want to, I want to help educate our audience. And again, there's parts of our audience that are brand new to this issue and parts that have followed it kind of closely. But still, especially in the United States, the dearth of information or the fact that most people who aren't Arab, don't speak Arabic and are thus, you know, not able to really follow the events that closely. I want to put this where we are now at this juncture into some sort of historical perspective. So you have the Nakba in 1948. There was the 1967 June war where Israel goes and conquers the West Bank and Gaza and the Golan Heights and parts of Egypt. Then there was some you know, the exiting of, of the Israelis from Egypt, but the seizing of the Golan Heights and basically taking full control or almost full control over the West Bank and Gaza. 
There was the war in Lebanon in 1982 that was designed to destroy the PLO. There were the Intifada, the first and second Intifada, the Oslo Accords. I mean, this has been a protracted struggle that has gone through all of these complicated and complex stages. Where we are now, though, is really truly different and unique because in one way, the U.S. is desperately seeking or seems to be seeking a way to end the conflict vis-a-vis a political solution, but the vessel for it, the Palestinian Authority, is not acceptable to the masses of the Palestinian people and is seen as a discredited comprador, as, as Yara mentioned, basically an extension of American and Israeli power. So it's not viable. Then you have the Palestinian people who have now gaining all of the support globally. You have it engaged with regional actors, including like in Yemen, which would have been sort of not a factor 15 years ago, but the Yemeni resistance, definitely a factor right now. The same in Iraq, the same in Syria, the same, of course, in Lebanon. And the Palestinian people are demanding real liberation, not like some sort of Bantustan sort of outcome. I'm going to say all this because in the late 1980s, when the U.S. was confronted with the revolution in South Africa, the U.S. and Britain found a way to negotiate the end of apartheid, and they ended white majority rule. There was a black majority political rule came into existence, but the white racist ruling class and its property was essentially left intact. And that accounts for many of the underlying problems in South Africa today. But there was a negotiated settlement. It's complicated. There was other reasons involved in that, including the the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp. But all that said, it's hard to see what the contours are of the settlement at this point, absent or short of actual total liberation for the Palestinian people. Meaning, how does the U.S. navigate a political solution that's indeed unacceptable to a people who are now in struggle and have the support of people around the world? Anyway, I just wanted to help the audience with some of this history because, yes, the U.S. wants a solution, but its own position and its own embrace of the Zionist project fully, and Netanyahu at this point fully, although that could be tentative, makes the Biden administration and the U.S. a little bit stuck. So with that said, I want to get both of your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not only, I I can't remember exactly what the word you used, Brian, was, but it's not only a support, it's an extension of the U.S. in a lot of ways. You know, we can look at the Zionist entity as almost like a a U.S. military base in the region. And we know that the reason why the Zionist entity was created primarily, or two of the reasons why the Zionist entity were created was first to kind of dispel the threat of Arab unity in the region. And we're seeing now that it was unsuccessful because we're seeing regional actors and the popular masses of the Arab world taking to the streets in support of Palestine. We have seen, you know, the Yemeni resistance, we've seen the Lebanese resistance, we've seen the Iraqi resistance continue to fight alongside the Palestinian people and for the Palestinian cause and see the Palestinian struggle as part of their own struggle. And so this idea of neutralizing Arab unity or kind of fragmenting Arab unity failed. And then the second was, as I mentioned, an imperial outpost in the region. And we're seeing increasing 
increasingly Palestine understood as part and parcel of a broader anti-imperialist struggle. Um, we're seeing, you know, the multipolar position in the world today being one that, despite not being perfect, is a two-state solution and is a more favorable position towards Palestine than that of Western imperialism. And so we've seen that the whole reason why the Zionist entity was created, the kind of objectives of the creation of the Zionist entity have by and large failed. And that's why we're continuing to see every, as you mentioned, Brian, there have been these ongoing forms of Palestinian resistance, these periods of revolution, and then kind of consolidating gains for the revolution, and then a continued revolution. We are, have been in a protracted struggle for over 100 years now. And the reason why, you know, with every with every revolution, we have gotten closer and closer to liberation is because ultimately the overarching objectives of the Zionist entity were deemed to fail from the beginning. Yara, I want to ask you the same question, putting the struggle for national liberation, for revolution, for freedom of the Palestinian people into this historical context, recognizing that it's gone through so many different stages and phases and complexity, but we are indeed at a new stage. I want to get your thoughts, too, about that. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the particular moment, and it's not only, I think there's something you mentioned, Brian, that I think is really important, which is like, you know, how could the U.S. essentially be able to carve a path for a political solution? You know, as we've talked about already, we've seen that the Palestinian people, for the most part, are not interested in a U.S. brokered political solution. And they're certainly not interested in the continued leadership of Mahmoud Abbas and, and the Palestinian Authority. I think what's also particularly unique about this moment is that we're seeing a contradiction start to emerge between the United States and Israel. And we know that this is, you know, not some kind of rigid relationship, that there's constant tensions that we've seen historically between Israel and the United States. And oftentimes they are able to unify alongside their shared interests. But in this moment, there seems to be a contradiction between Israel's very narrow interest and the United States global interest. And so what we're seeing here is actually a U.S. desire to contain Israel, especially Netanyahu, who at the moment has a desire to widen and confront both Hezbollah and Iran. And what's interesting about this is that you had I can't remember when this was, but you had one of the former Israeli politicians essentially say quite clearly that the United States is running to Israel to try to stop it from entering a regional war, that they're rushing to Israel to try to contain the Israeli state. Of course, we know that that is part of Blinken's visit, for sure. And then there's also the fact that just last week, Biden envoy Amos Hoschin also arrived in Israel with a similar goal, right? Attempt trying to calm down tensions between Israel and Lebanon, trying to rein Israel out of this kind of attempt to really kind of escalate in a broader way in the region. And so I think it's we're in a unique moment because the U.S. is attempting to assert its control over Israel. And, and like Janine said, Israel has historically been this kind of colonial and imperialist outpost for much of the Western world, whether it was initially Britain and then later the U.S. as U.S.-led imperialism sort of solidified itself. But we're also seeing through the internal contradictions between segments of Israeli society, this push for Israel to take a different path to enter a regional war. And the United States is 
trying to rein it in. And so you have kind of the United States attempting to assert some sort of path that seems to be in many ways rejected by both, right? Like on the one side, you have right-wing Israeli ministers like Schmoltrich calling for the complete, the removal of all the people of Gaza, their relocation, you know, into the Sinai desert. And then you have the Palestinian people who have learned and who see in front of them the clear fascism of the Israeli state, who see in front of them the history of the United States luring them into political solutions that served nothing other than to allow for Israel to continue its expansion. And then you have the United States trying to find legitimacy in this process. Janine, throughout history, as a colonial settler projects developed, there were frequently contradictions between the big colonizers and their proxies, their extension, the little colonizers. In North America and the United States, those contradictions led to an armed struggle by the bourgeoisie and the colonies, the slave-owning class, and the northern commercial class in the revolution of 1776, so-called, the independence war from Britain. So there was a contradiction. In the case of Haiti, after the French Revolution, the big colonizers in France had a, had a contradiction with the little colonizers, the white slave-owning ruling class in Haiti. And that was ultimately resolved by the Haitian Revolution of 1804. So these contradictions exist. And you could see, as both of you have mentioning, that while Israel, the Zionist entity, as you're describing it, is a project of colonialism from the outset, starting you know way back when, and even before the Balfour Declaration, which was clearly a British colonial project, but there were contradictions. In 1956, when Israel worked with Britain and France to invade Egypt, the Eisenhower administration condemned the invasion into Egypt, as did the Soviet leadership, and it ended. It was really in 1967 when the U.S. was bogged down in the war in Vietnam and the Arab Revolution in all of its different manifestations and iterations was sweeping the region, this resource-rich region, that the U.S., I think, decided to rely on Israel because it showed its military capacity when it invaded all of its neighbors in 1967 and won very quickly. So the U.S., from that time on, from 67 on, views Israel as a complete 100% extension of American power, a proxy, a puppet, even though it has contradictions with the little colonizers. The big colonizers and the little colonizers have these contradictions. But now, at this stage, in 2024, I can't see the U.S. breaking up with Israel at all. I think I can't see that. I can't see that kind of a split happening. So it's wedded to the Israeli Zionist project, which has its own narrow expansionist interests that are not exactly the same as the U.S. So there's this conundrum, this inability, a contradiction that doesn't appear solvable for the U.S. And that As long as the struggle continues, as long as, in fact, the war continues, that contradiction will reveal itself in a graver and graver way. And next year, there's going to be a presidential election. And if Donald Trump defeats Joe Biden, which is certainly possible, that's not going to be a relief at all for the Palestinian people. 
anyway, we're in this kind of toxic mix. But if you look at the big picture, the underlying thing that really is the motor for change is the Palestinian resistance movement in all of its iterations and the global support it's receiving. Go ahead. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned all of those revolutions immediately after almost we were just talking about negotiations and the and the power of or lack thereof of negotiations. Because I think all we have to do is look at history to understand, to look at clear examples of negotiation and how negotiation has resulted in capitulation versus the taking up of of armed struggle and how that has resulted in liberation. So, you know, all of the examples that you mentioned, Brian, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's the Haitian Revolution, whether it's Algeria, all of these struggles have taken up armed resistance as a way to achieve liberation for their people rather than kind of negotiation with the small colonizer or the big colonizer regardless. To your point, I think that actually we need to understand like the fall of US hegemony and the fall of Zionism and the Zionist entity as one and the same. And that's why primarily we see the Palestinian liberation struggle as a part of a broader anti-imperialist struggle, because we understand that, you know, while US hegemony continues to be hegemonic, while the US continues to be the main superpower in the world, and while Zionism continues to be a global project that is impacting our region in particular, that, you know, Palestinian liberation won't be realized. And so, you know, we really see confronting Zionism, the Palestinian liberation struggle, and the struggle against Western imperialism as one and the same because of exactly what you're saying, the fact that they are married, they're almost like the children of each other, and, you know, one can't be dismantled without both of them. Yeah, it's kind of... um an inter-imperialist unity, which is characteristic of this period, as opposed to earlier periods where different imperial powers either sometimes collaborated with each other and then went to war with each other. But the new dynamic element, especially it seems, Yara, in the Middle East, is that resistance forces are stronger than they were. The resistance forces in that region, not just in Gaza, not just in the West Bank, but throughout are stronger. And it's one of those ironies of history that after the September 11th, 2001 attack in New York City and against the Pentagon, the U.S. waged this all-out sort of war on terror, which was a banner for basically aggressive interventionism, especially in the Middle East, targeting Iraq, again, targeting Libya, Syria. They were hoping to take out the Iranian regime, Somalia. Afghanistan was just sort of a stop along the way, almost. I mean, the focus was the Middle East, really, not, you know, South or Central Asia. And here we are 23 years later, the U.S. could not defeat the Taliban, even though the Taliban had offered to surrender in November 2001 in exchange for amnesty. The U.S. said no to that. And now 20 years later, the Taliban is the government. The resistance forces in Iraq are stronger The U.S. did not succeed in Iraq. Again, succeeded in killing a lot of Iraqis, but not in having a puppet regime. Did not succeed in Syria. Iran is stronger than it was 20 years ago. Hezbollah is part of the sort of body politic of Lebanon. It's not simply and only a resistance movement. It's part and parcel of mainstream Lebanese politics. When you look at the trajectory of just the last two decades, it's really dramatic. And I think if people think about the Gaza 
war as simply October 7th to today and ignore the last 20 years. It's sort of coming in at the end of the movie and, and pretending that you know what the movie's about. Anyway, as we start to move towards the end, I want, let's just talk about the recent history and how that has, in fact, impacted the region and impacted Palestine. Yeah, I think, Brian, to that point around the strengthening of the resistance forces, and Janine, you mentioned this earlier that I think and it's really important, is the United States has consistently sought to create divisions between the Arab people to back civil wars that will even create divisions within nation states, let alone divisions between nation states. And what we've seen in this particular moment is the emergence of a unified resistance within the Arab region. And, you know, we've talked already, I think, about Hezbollah, the role that Hezbollah has played in opening up the Northern Front. And I think it's really important, you know, that this role not be undermined in the sense that while it is a controlled kind of escalation, what Hezbollah has done through opening up the Northern Front is remove or result in the expulsion or, or the removal of tens of thousands of Israeli settlers in the north. And so this is creating significant internal pressure within Israel, where the right wing inside Israel is trying to agitate for further advancements in the north in order to be able to allow tens of thousands of settlers to return to the north. And then what we've seen in the Red Sea with Ansarullah and the attacks on and, you know, stopping of boats with weapons destined for Israel and so on has also been really a development that shows unity in different parts of the Arab world. And we also saw through that the unification of the European and American sides alongside Israel through their commitment, the United States in particular's commitment to intervene. And we saw its intervention with a attack on Ansarullah just about a week ago, which resulted in the death of 10 of its members. And so we're seeing these kinds of the strengthening of and also the unification of resistance forces at a time where we're also seeing the United States attempt to support Israel. We know that there's continued support in weapons and so on. But also all of this is happening, as you both said, in the backdrop of an emerging multipolar world, right, where the United States, I think, has for some time indicated its interest to move towards China, does not want to kind of stay in the Middle East. And we saw, interestingly, the United States military leaked an assessment that Israel would lose a war with Hezbollah. And so the United States, in a way, is you know, clearly trying to deter Israel from war with Hezbollah, understands that the resistance forces in the region have become stronger. I think it's quite clear to many that the United States' continued wars in the Middle East have not resulted in U.S. control of the region. And I think, you know, to kind of just also tie this all in with what we're seeing take place in the United States and Canada and in Europe in terms of the masses, I think you know, Netanyahu openly said that, you know, there's these huge demonstrations in Western capitals and expressed this concern that these demonstrations would threaten U.S. armed shipments and, you know, called for Israel to figure out how to apply counter pressure. And the Biden administration has also made it clear to Israel that they can only kind of maintain the U.S. position against the weight of global opinion for a limited period of time. And so we know that the pressure that we're, we've been applying is working, 
the mass organization that's taking place in the US, Canada, Europe, and all across the world is certainly allowing for some level of constraints and in terms of time. And we're starting to get to a place where the American people, Canadian people, and so on are, you know, we're not stopping week after week, these mass mobilizations, the intensification of tactics with direct actions. We saw just, you know, a few days ago in New York, people, organizers blocking three bridges and a tunnel. We're seeing this mass escalation and civil disobedience. And I think that this is applying pressure and it is sort of creating constraints for the United States, which shows us that while although we know that the United States is not going to particularly become an ally to the Palestinian people overnight, but that through the power of the masses, we can apply pressure in order to force specific or create constraints for the United States government. Janine, I think the issue of restraint as an application of meaningful pressure by grassroots movements that Yara is alluding to is in fact very, very important. And, you know, during the Vietnam War, when I was very young, but an organizer and drafted and then part of that whole movement at that time, we had demonstrations every day. And a lot of people would say at a certain point, what's it all for? Like, we didn't stop the war. It continues to go on. The body count is reported every day in the media. There becomes kind of a cynicism about mass organizing. And obviously, a protest movement somewhere else isn't going to change the outcome of the war in a decisive or an immediate way. But the issue of restraint is very important because at a certain point, the United States government could not defeat the Vietnamese people without escalation of a very major type, including the application of nuclear weapons. And Nixon, in fact, when he came into office in 1969, he met or had his envoys meet with the North Vietnamese and said, we have a special way to end the war, meaning threatening nuclear weapons. And the Vietnamese just looked at him unblinkingly because they knew the U.S. could not escalate. And the reason the U.S. couldn't escalate was because of the restraint imposed on any U.S. government, whether it was Republican or Democrat, didn't matter. If they had escalated at that point, it would have been domestic internal civil war in the United States. And the ability of the movement to restrain the application of imperialist military power in the way it wanted to was in fact very significant in terms of the final outcome of the battle in Vietnam. Because as long as the imperialists could not escalate, the Vietnamese liberation forces could wear them down. And I'm saying this, again, because it's such a censorious moment where YouTube or Twitter will take us down if it sounds like we're advocating for armed struggle, which, of course, we're making an objective assessment of what actually has existed before in history, like during the Vietnam War, or what happens today. But it's real. The restraint on imperialism is real. Military supremacy by itself doesn't settle the score because you can be a military giant, but if you have feet of clay, meaning you're internally weak in society, then that weakness really becomes a factor in the final outcome of wars of national liberation. Anyway, I think it's an extremely important point about the significance, and the, especially in the Western countries, of 
these kind of mass movements that we're witnessing and that all of us are involved in organizing. Yeah, absolutely. And we also already spoke about the fact that, you know, we are in currently in multi-front regional war that is being fought, you know, by the Palestinian resistance, Lebanese resistance, uh, the Yemenis and Iraq. And, you know, with all that being said, we are seeing the resistance factions acting with restraint. You know, Hezbollah has been engaged in in the war since October 8th. So, you know, the day after October 7th. And as Yara alluded to, or as Yara explicitly said, has successfully drawn, you know, thousands of soldiers, Israeli soldiers, away from Gaza and forced hundreds of thousands of settlers out of the north. And, you know, with all of that being said, the members of the Axis of Resistance have said that they don't want the war to escalate, that they are acting with restraint, as you mentioned, Brian. And so any escalation that we are seeing or any escalation that we see or attempts to kind of probe escalation into kind of a broader, wider regional war would be due to regional escalations that are being, you know, pushed by the Zionist entity and not by the resistance factions, given that they are all, you know, acting in restraint while also maintaining popular support. And this balance between acting with restraint and maintaining popular support is a really, really intricate balance that I think the resistance is doing really, really well to maintain through the kind of successful propaganda that we've been seeing, you know, pushed out by the resistance factions in this moment. Let's go to the end here. I want to ask both of you, Yara, you're in Canada, North America, PYM, Palestine Youth Movement. What is its importance? How can people find you and organize with you, build with you? And also, after you're finished, Janine, I'd like to ask you the same question for the Palestinian Youth Movement in the UK. Yara, go ahead. So the Palestinian Youth Movement is a political organization made up of Palestinian and Arab youth. And we have chapters across the United States, Canada, and Britain. And really, I think the impact that we're seeing, and I'll I'll speak maybe a bit to the North America context, is that we've been mobilizing now for 13 weeks, weekly actions, weekly protests. But we've also been organizing, you know, organizer meetings, art builds, meet and greets, in order to bring people into this work. We know that so many Palestinian and Arab youth are being activated in this moment. And many who have grown up, you know, hearing about Palestine, maybe participating in protests or organizing on their campuses, who in this moment are ready to really throw themselves into this work. And I think that's a sentiment that we all share as we're witnessing really a horrific genocide unfold. And so this is naturally driving people towards feeling like they need to make a difference, they need to make a change. And we know, as we just discussed, that protests, that direct actions, that mass mobilizations are making a difference. They are creating pressure. And this is critical for Palestinian and Arab youth, but also people more broadly to be able to feel like they are contributing to And so for those reasons, we've been organizing not only mass mobilizations and organizer meetings, but also taking part in direct actions through the Shut It Down for Palestine campaign, which is a coalitional effort that the Palestinian youth movement is involved in. And just in the last, since mid-November when the campaign launched, we've seen thousands of actions, direct actions take place under the Shut It Down for Palestine banner, some of which have been just incredible to watch, you know, the shutting down of bridges. We've seen direct actions at media companies, you know, in the United States or New York specifically, there was the action outside the New York Times or inside the New York Times 
We've seen actions at sites of transportation, you know, train stations, subway stations. And so there's really been kind of a concentrated effort. And really, it feels like we're building a movement that is capable not only of meeting this moment, but getting organized and continuing to build after this moment. And that is something that is critical because it's not sufficient only for us to get mobilized in the moments of crisis, but we need to be able to build something that can sustain itself and continue to organize in preparation for the next moment of crisis, the next attack and the next war. Janine, a characteristic feature of genuine viable mass movements is that it combines self-acting people people who are not waiting to act, they're acting, they're finding a way. They're, sometimes they're forming groups or taking friends and doing things. And then there's organizations and a movement can't really succeed without organizations. Organizations become both the collective memory for the movement, an educator, a teacher for the movement, a guide for action for a movement. Again, I can see, as Yara's mentioning here in the United States, in New York, in Washington, and elsewhere, all around the country, the impact of the Palestinian youth movement, PYM. Real quick, as we move to the finish line, how about in the UK and how can people reach you if they're watching it in the UK or in Europe? Yeah, I mean, just to build on what Yada said, it's really interesting that seeds of PYM Britain were planted in May 2021 from this idea that, you know, there was a group of students at the time who wanted to be able to organize in a more long term way after they finish, after they graduate from university and wanted to build a political organization that was part of a broader kind of international movement. And that's how the PYM started. And we've kind of started to see the fruits, I guess, of those seeds in this moment. You know, we've started to see PYM in Britain really establish itself in this moment and through the mobilizations, you know, both in North America and in, in Britain, we have been raising the critical consciousness of our community. And that's been a really important part of these mobilizations. But it's also important for us to acknowledge the fact that, you know, raising critical consciousness in and of itself, you know, sharpening contradictions in and of itself is not enough. We need our communities to be committed to changing their reality after their consciousness has been raised. What are they going to do to change their reality? And, you know, that is through political organizing. Political organizing is the solution to the those things. And so the most important thing for us to be doing right now is to be encouraging people to join organizations, like you said, Brian, to be able to enable more long-term organizing, to turn these mobilizations into long-term strategic organizing at an international scale for Palestine through joining organizations like the PYM and other kind of leftist organizations in this moment. All right. And for those of you watching or listening to this show, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area or you can Join us Saturday, January 13th. There will be hundreds of thousands of people gathering again at Freedom Plaza, the same place that we had almost a half a million people, or perhaps more than a half a million people on November 4th, 2023, the largest until that time ever demonstration in support of the Palestinian people. Yara and Janine, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 